Charlie. Mark, one Charlie. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm full of optimism. Einstein's theory of relativity. We're still seeing it quite well through that haze. About the future innovations and growing strength in the air. This is Finding Your Frequency with your hosts, Jeff Spinard and Ryan Treasure. It's time to speak up, share your voice, and hear from the thought leaders. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Finding Your Frequency. My name is Ryan Treasure. I'll be hosting with you today. Man, you know, I, I just love talking about important topics. The more important the topic, I feel the the better the topic matter resonates with the the community, with the listening audience. And, you know, being a, a big, huge friend of the military, being in the Navy myself several years ago. And, you know, I see all my friends and all these guys that have come back from, uh, you know, being at war and dealing with all these ailments of PTSD. And, you know, I feel like the, the veteran suicide rate is so high and uh, in conjunction with opioid crisis and all of the other accoutrements that are happening in our particular society are all driving, uh, you know, the statistics for suicide much higher. And I, I know that suicide prevention, uh, violence prevention, and all of those things are extremely important. Of course, uh, we here at Voice America and Finding a Frequency advocate for uh, any of the help that you can get. If you, if you have any of those thoughts at all, please make sure to get some help. It's extremely important. So I want to talk about that today. But uh, of course, I can't talk about it alone because I'm not an expert in the field. So we want to bring on a great expert in that field, Dr. Mark Goulston. Welcome to the show. Well, glad to be on. Uh, I, I am a doctor, but you can call me Mr. Mark. That's fine. Well, doctor, we appreciate you jumping on. I know that you're a former uh, UCLA professor. You've been an FBI hostage negotiator trainer. Um, you're an expert in suicide and violence prevention and one of the world's foremost experts on listening. So uh, why don't you just kind of start from the beginning and, and, and tell your, your story about how you found your frequency and what made you decide to move down the path and, and ultimately end up where you are today? Well, you know, there's always a backstory to what people do, and I have a backstory. Uh, uh, you know, I, I feel humbled and grateful for what I've been able to accomplish, but I think one of my greatest personal accomplishments, you know, besides the family and a long-lasting marriage and kids, is I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. And I don't know anyone who dropped out of medical school twice and finished, and I didn't. I didn't drop out to sort of see the world. I think I had untreated depression and I hit a wall. So I was highlighting all the books and I was not able to hold on to the information. So I took a leave of absence and worked in a blue collar job, which I still miss because it was just so simple. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and my mind came back probably at that level. And then I came back to medical school after the first leave of absence, and my mind left again in six months. So I asked for another leave of absence, and something people who are listening don't know, and I really didn't know at the time, is that every time someone uh, takes a leave of absence, the medical school loses matching funds because the tuition doesn't pay for the ed full education. And so the dean of the school sent a letter to the dean of students that I, uh, after I had met with the dean of the school. And the dean of students uh, called me in 
and said, Mark, you better get in here. We have a letter from the dean of the, uh, dean of the school. And so I got in there and I was down. I mean, I, and I came from a background, not unusual, that you're only worth what you can do in the world. And I'd reached a point where I didn't think I could do much of anything. And I'm not sure if the S word, the suicide word, was floating in my head, but I was uh, certainly down. And I also you know, was one of these people who you know, was either too proud or didn't want to burden people. So I'm not the kind of person who would ask for help. And so the dean of students said, come in here and let's read the letter. And he gave the letter to me and it said, I've met with Mr. Goulston. This was from the dean of the school who really cares about financing. I met with Mr. Goulston. We talked about an alternate career, and I'm advising the promotions committee that he be that he be asked to withdraw. So they couldn't kick me out because I was miraculously passing courses, <laughs> and I didn't even know what it meant. And I looked at the dean of students, uh, uh, Bill McNary. We called him Mac. I said, "What does this mean, Mac?" And he looked at me in his Irish Catholic Boston accent. He said, "Mac, you've been kicked out." And I got to tell you, it was like a gunshot wound. Uh, and it was my very good fortune that I didn't get sarcastic and say, they can't do that to me. I was too far gone for that. And I also, I don't think I was a pathetic mess. I didn't go, oh, what am I going to do? It's like I, I literally kind of doubled over. And, uh, and I know what a gunshot wound feels like because I had a perforated uh, intestine 10 years ago. I almost died. And it was just like that. And, and I'm not very religious, but it gets a little bit woo-woo here because I felt something wet on my cheeks and I thought I was bleeding from my eyes. And I just kept looking at my hands to see why they were wet. I thought it was blood, but it was tears. And, uh, and I think at that moment, I fell apart. But this is what he said. So imagine this. You come from a background where you're only worth what you can do, and you're in a point in your life when you don't think you can do anything. And Mac said to me, he said, Mac, you didn't screw up, but you are screwed up. But if you get unscrewed up, I think this school would be glad they gave you a second chance. So I sudden I start then crying with I don't know he was he was pummeling me with kindness and compassion that I didn't think I deserved and then he said and Mark even if you don't get unscrewed up even if you don't become a doctor even if you don't do anything with the rest of your life I'd be proud to know you because you have a streak of goodness in you that we don't grade in medical school and you have no idea how much the world needs that goodness and you won't know it till you're 35, but you have to make it till you're 35. At that point, I can't look at him. Uh, I'm I'm just crying. And he says, look at me, look at me. And I looked up at him and my eyes were totally bloodshot and he said, "Uh, you you deserve to be on this planet and you're going to let me help you. If he had said, you know, uh, if I can help you, give me a call, I probably wouldn't have called him, and I probably wouldn't be here today. And what happened is it was at the moment where I was falling apart that he reached in, and and, and if you, this is not a word that people like to use in the military, I surrendered. I just let go. 
And it's interesting because I work with the military. I work with, uh, you know, stopping uh, Mission 22. And, and I've spoken to veterans, and I'm sure you've heard similar stories. Uh, and a number of them, what happens is they reach a similar point. Veterans, when they, go, when they start to plummet, uh, they go through stress, which they can push through. But then when the stress crosses over into distress, they focus on relieving the distress. And they start to get desperate to relieve the des- distress. And what happens is nothing's working. And they start to get uh, anxious. They start to get depressed. They start to feel not in control. Then they start to feel out of control. And then there's a point at which they feel after going out of control, they're going to shatter. So imagine like a shattered windshield that hasn't yet shattered fully. And then the next step is they feel they're going to fragment and they're never going to come back. And that's when they're looking down the barrel of a gun. And that's when they say, God, I don't want to kill myself, but I can't take it anymore. And they surrender. They let go. Uh, And that's why many of them will say it was my faith that got me through. And if you think about what faith is, faith is believing in something where you have no evidence or facts to back it up. And what happens is they just start to sob, kind of as I did with Dean McNary. And instead of falling apart, you start to feel relief. And uh, and to make it full circle, as I said, I don't think I'm very religious, but I told this story that I'm telling you to Reverend uh, uh, Jim Kowalski. He was the Reverend of St. John the Divine, uh, the biggest Gothic cathedral in North America. It's in Manhattan. And I told him the story about Dean McNary. And when I told it to him, my whole body got warm and red and uh And I said, Jim, Dean McNary was an angel. I'm not even the right religion, but he was an angel sent into my life to save it. And then Jim, without missing a beat, said, yes, he was, Mark. So here's the good and bad news when an angel steps in your life. It changes you when an angel steps in your life. That's the good news. The bad news, and it's not really bad news, you are compelled to pay it forward. You don't have a choice. So I took the second year off, and they gave me a leave of absence because he went to bat for me. Uh, And he saw something in me that they didn't, but he fought for me, and he appealed it, and and they gave me that second year. And And I went and worked a psychiatric hospital called the Menninger Foundation, which is now in Houston, but it used to be in Kansas. And I grew up in Boston, went to undergraduate school uh, in California, and I just wanted to get away from all the pressure in my head. So I went to Topeka and I did something at the Menninger Foundation. And what was odd is I grew up in the suburbs of Boston and there I was at Topeka State Hospital with schizophrenic farm boys in the middle of winter. And I was reaching them. I was getting through to them. And I think part of what it was is I was just doing what Dean McNary did with me. I didn't try to give them advice or solutions. We'd just go for walks. And and it was really weird because I said to some of the psychiatrists there, I said, is this legitimate? This is not like being in medical school. I mean, is this a legitimate profession? Uh, Because I never thought I was qualified to do anything and they said no it's legitimate and you you have a knack 
So then I came back and one of my earliest mentors, uh, when I finished med schools, I went, did psychiatry training at UCLA. One of my earliest mentors is this fellow named Dr. Ed Schneidman. And if you look him up, he's really the father of suicide prevention. Started uh, suicide uh, prevention centers in Washington and LA. And, uh, and he would refer me still suicidal patients who needed to be discharged from UCLA. So these were patients who weren't acutely suicidal and they, you can't keep them there forever, but in order for them to be discharged, there had to be a psychiatrist on the outside. So he would go into a consultation and he'd send them to me. And something I talk about in my book, Just Listen, and we talk about in the documentary, and by the way, for listeners, the documentary is free. It's called Stay Alive, an intimate conversation about suicide prevention. Uh, and it's available at YouTube, youtube.com forward slash stay alive video. And you'll find it there. Uh, the full documentary, and if it's too hard to watch, it's chopped up into, I think, eight episodes. So he would refer me people, and there was one particular person that I'll call Nancy who had made four suicide attempts before I'd seen her. She'd been in the hospital three to four months every year for, I don't know, four or five years before I started seeing her, and I was seeing her after she got out of the hospital for, I'm not sure, five, six months, and I didn't think I was making any progress with her at all, but that's the longest she'd gone without trying to kill herself. And I used to moonlight in those days, so that means I would work at a state hospital. I'd cover for the other psychiatrists. I'd do admissions. I'd do medications. I'd do whatever. And sometimes you're up 36 hours. So on one weekend, I was up 36 hours, and a Monday morning, there I was seeing Nancy, and she never made eye contact. It's kind of a little bit, I, I didn't realize it till the second, but it's a little bit, I guess, what Mac had seen in me when I broke eye contact with him and I looked down. And as I'm seated with Nancy, because I'm sleep deprived, all the color in the room turned to black and white. So I'm looking out at the room and it is black and white. And I got these this cold chill in me and I thought I was having a stroke or a seizure. So I did a neurologic exam on myself. I'm tapping my knees. I'm looking at my fingers. And it wasn't rude because she never made eye contact. And I realized I'm not having a stroke or seizure. And then I had this crazy idea that I was looking at the world through her eyes and just feeling the cold chill. And because I was sleep deprived, I said, uh, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad, and I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I will miss you, and maybe I'll understand why you had to do it to get out of the pain. And I thought, oh, gee, I, I, I just blew it. I just gave her permission. And that was the first time she really looked at me. And I thought she was going to say, thank you, I'm overdue. I thought I'd blown it. And I said, what are you looking at? And she looked at me and she said, if you can really understand why I might, uh, might need to kill myself to get out of the pain, maybe I won't have to. And then she smiled. And I had to we had total eye contact. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to give you advice, solutions, or treatments that you're not going to follow through on. And I'm looking into her eyes and I said, I'm going to find you wherever you are and just keep you company there. And uh, I'm going to keep you company there as long as it takes. And you're going to walk out of this. And she just started to, and she, and she just started to cry with relief because way down deep, 
she felt all alone. And I will tell you, when I speak to veterans and we talk about this and I, and I talk to them about that journey all the way down to looking through uh, down the barrel of a gun, I, I remember I did this, uh, I did a Zoom call with an active duty uh, colonel and I will send you a link to an infographic called The Road Back from Hell, and it has a picture of a veteran. And, and, and when you see it, you're going to go, oh, my God, this is what they live. And as I went through all the steps of it with him on a Zoom video call, he closes his eyes, and he's alternately crying and smiling. And I said, and after we go through it, all the way through to his surrendering and letting go, you know, and finding faith, and it's helped him. I said, what were you crying about? He said, as we were going through this, I just kept reliving all the awful things. I saw all the awful things I did. And I said, why were you smiling? He said, you made sense of it all for me. He said, I got to tell you, when you're in the military, you feel chopped up into different treatments that don't even talk to each other. You don't, you don't feel like a person. You feel like a patient chopped up into different specialties. And it's not that easy to even get the treatment. And, and one department saying, that's not what we do. They, you know, and you just feel chopped up. And he said, as we went through this, I felt like the person inside. And I was crying with, uh, and smiling with relief. Because I never, I haven't felt that. So, does any? Can you track with any of this? Oh yeah, very much so. I've had several conversations with friends who have come back and diagnosed with PTSD, and the one kind of common factor is a lot of those guys, even though they have families and you know wives and children, for whatever reason, sometimes they just feel alone and lost, like nobody knows what they've seen gone through or how they feel and it makes it really hard for those guys to cope and uh, you know just kind of that advice that you you had given and just you know that that's great and what where where, where would you where would you tell a veteran who you know maybe listening to this where would you tell them to go to seek out some some help if they're uh, having those types of challenges in their life well you know they they go to the VA, which they hate. <laughs> yes, they do. They do. And uh, uh, you have to go to your resources. What I would like, and maybe you can help me with this, um, uh, I, and I'll send you a article I wrote that has the infographic in it. I was trying to find it right now on Google right, when you were mentioning it. I, th- I think if, if, you, if you look up Goulston... Uh, Mission 22 uh, Suicide, there's an article I wrote, and it's about veterans plummeting, as I said, and uh, there's an infographic, and this is what I'm wanting to do, but I will tell you, here's the frustration, it's the not invented here pushback. I have a direct line, I mean, one of my good friends ran the Marines, he was the CEO of the Marines in the 90s, he was the first CEO of the US Intrepid, uh, aircraft carrier on the Hudson, and and I I know uh, I I have a direct line to the president of Stanford, the chancellor of MIT. Uh, I was a mentor to the CEO of Google Health, so I get in at the top, and then they just send me down into the weeds. 
to the whatever the mental health people are doing and they take the call because they have to and they say we have it covered and so uh and so i'm undeterred <laughs> i mean I, I i'm saying the heck with it but here's the idea if you can find the article or you'll see and you scroll down uh the idea is to have to meet with groups of veterans and and have them share the story together. So maybe the first step would be for each of them to share what was the first time in the military that you got there and it re- you realized it was like nothing that you imagined it would be and you felt trapped. What was the, do you follow me? And they just share the story of plummeting. What was the first time, uh, you know, when, when you, you were able to focus on what you needed to do with great difficulty and with the help of uh, cannabis and booze or worse. And what was the time when you, you, all you could focus on was getting relief because it was so awful. And then you'd have them build a fabric of connectedness with uh, their fellow warriors. And then they, and, and they together, they would build a community because you're right. They go back uh, to their families and nobody gets it. Uh, in fact, here's a little tidbit that I think you'll find interesting. One of my books is Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder for Dummies. Uh, and I've been trying to, here's another uh, thing that I, I would like not to give up on. I've been trying to change the diagnosis of PTSD to what people really live. People do not live post-traumatic stress disorder. What people live is re-traumatization avoidance, RTA. And when you talk to anyone who's been deeply traumatized, veterans, rape victims, whoever, and you say, good for you, uh, uh, you, got, you, got, uh, uh, you got over it, how courageous, and you look them straight in the eye, and you know what I'm going to tell you, they say, I never got over it. I'm not the same. Yeah. What do you mean? I'm tentative. I don't put two feet into anything. I'm always checking what's going on. Uh, uh, I don't know peace. I know exhaustion. I don't know joy. I occasionally have fun. And then if you say, well, do you think you could go through it again? Uh, At least the people I've spoke to, they said, no. I don't know how I made it through the first time. And I just definitely believe I couldn't go through it again. So all the symptoms of PTSD are ways to avoid re-traumatization. So if you're a, a vet and you and you just can't relate to people and you're there in your pickup truck and you can finally lower your guard and you're having a good time, so your guard is lowered and you feel, boy, this is pretty good, and another car backfires next to you, you go through the effing roof. So is, any, uh, is this making sense to you? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of times the public kind of generally uses the post-traumatic stress disorder as a catch-all label for the psychological effects of the combat that those guys had issued. And, you know, are there are, are there stuff that you've seen that are distinct treatments for those other issues, whether it be, you know, just guilt or depression or, you know, loss of interest in life that seem to fall outside of that clinical definition of PTSD? Well, I think what happens is most treatments are putting lipstick on a pain. And so, uh, and so they're trying to treat the symptoms, but what you really need to do is you need to get into the core. It's like an abscess that's 
in your psyche, spirit, and soul, and it needs to be drained. And the way it gets drained, and that's why I, you know, it, it, I would love to set up a pilot program anywhere with a group of veterans, and we walk through this, but as they begin to share their journey, uh, and as that colonel started crying and smiling, if, if you find that infographic, the journey has a happy ending. You know, you see that, you know, people are afraid of letting go of control. They think they're going to fragment. They're about to pull the trigger, but instead they say, God, help me. I don't want to kill myself, but I can't stand the pain. They start crying. And as they start crying, they start to feel relief. As they start to feel relief, their mind starts to relax and they begin to think again. And if you do that with other fellow veterans who've gone through the same thing, the healing effect is like, it's, 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 it's exponentially improved. But getting that into the system, you know, I need all the help I can get. And But for people who are listening, yes, go to what's available to you. Uh, I'll tell you something else I discovered that's in the movie, Stay Alive. So the movie, Stay Alive, uh, I interviewed this fellow, Kevin Hines, who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and he survived. He was a CNN champion for change a few weeks ago. And he's a force of nature. He goes around the world and he just speaks about his experience of surviving, jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and how depressed he got and how suicidal. And he has saved many lives. And it was a privilege to be able to, you know, have this time with him. So I interviewed him and a, Japan, a female Japanese pop singer who's a suicide prevention advocate for about four and a half hours. And the, and the documentary's a little over 70 minutes. But there's one part of it where uh, there's, a, there's a, an approach that I've created called targeted interventional empathy. Targeted interventional empathy. And what that does is, I don't know if you're familiar with CRISPR, but CRISPR is this uh, way of going into genes and fixing them. It goes in and it, it just fixes them and puts them together. Targeted interventional empathy does for the despair and discouragement that suicidal people feel, it does for that what CRISPR does for genes. And so in the documentary, there's a tool, a, a part of targeted interventional empathy called the seven words. So if you're dealing with someone who doesn't want to talk about it, a friend, a teenager, um, and, and they say, I'm fine, leave me alone, and then you back off, oh, okay, if, if you want to talk about it, I'll help you. Uh, in this, the way targeted interventional empathy works is when they say that, uh, you know, I'm fine. Uh, uh, you pause for two seconds, but you don't, you know, you don't back off. You pause for two seconds, look them in the eye and say, I know you don't want to be bothered, but seven words. And they're going to look at you and they're going to say, what? And you say, yeah, I know you don't want to be bothered, but seven words. And they're going to, you know, WTF seven words. And, you, and, then you, and then you're like a syringe pulling pus out of an abscess. And you say, yeah, here are the seven words. Uh, hurt, afraid, angry, ashamed, alone, lonely, tired. Pick one. And in the documentary, Kevin Hines smiles and he says, all of them. And then you're in. Yeah, pick about pick the one that's the toughest. Angry. Take me to when you were your angriest in the last week. And what happens is when people can take you to those moments when they feel awful, 
but they felt it alone and their head wigged out when they tell you about being 2.30 in the morning and walking around wanting to slit their wrists, they're not alone when they're telling you it. So they start to cry and you don't rush in with a solution or a treatment. You don't triage them. You, you let the pus drain and they keep crying and they start to feel relief. And that's how you heal people from the inside out. Wow, that's amazing. I really like that tactic of, you know, choosing the seven words and allowing that person to identify for themselves what is the 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 portion that they're dealing with most. Uh, that's really good. How how long, you know, before we wrap up, obviously I uh, want to tell folks a couple things. Uh where where can they get the book uh Just Listen Discover the Secret to Getting Through uh to absolutely anyone. Uh definitely want to let people know where to get that. Yeah, they can get that on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. By the way, I, this is a little puffery. It's it's the top book on listening in the world. I go to I went to Moscow and spoke for six hours to the Russian Federation managers about getting better results by listening to their people, and uh, uh, I was interviewed for the Russian Wall Street Journal about it, and it has the most the most reads of any articles ever. And I'm going back this October to do another presentation. Oh, that's awesome. And I know that uh, there there was the HBR IdeaCast episode, uh, Become a Better Listener, was ranked number one uh, of, of their podcast. And then you have uh, a show that you host, uh, uh, my, my Wake Up Call podcast hosted by uh, you, right, Dr. Golston? Yes, that, that's where I, and, and I'm gonna interview you. So we're gonna do a reciprocal thing. That's where I interview people about what is the thing that most matters to you that you wouldn't you wouldn't trade for any amount of money? And then what are the wake up calls that led you there? And they're all very personal conversations. So I'd turn the table on you, but they're very personal conversations. There's not particular questions and uh, and I've told people if this is too personal, we won't post it. And all of them have said, no, I, I want people to see this side of me. It, 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 just, it never comes out. You know, I, I never have conversations like this. And so it, it, it's people reveal incredibly vulnerable parts of themselves. Wow, that's amazing. Well, Dr. Mark Goulston, thank you so much for joining us today on Finding Your Frequency. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure you go check out the website, www.markgoulston.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N.com. And of course, check out the book, Just Listen, Discover the Secret to Getting Through to Absolutely Anyone. Uh, again, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Mark Goulston. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening on your favorite podcatcher, make sure you give us five stars because it's definitely better than four. Uh, we appreciate everybody tuning in and listening to Finding a Frequency right here on the Leader in Live Internet Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.